Thank you so much for joining us here on the Fearless Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anne-Marie Barter, and I am so grateful that you're joining us here today. Thank you so much. If you like what we're doing, please hit the subscribe button, comment, let us know what you like, and so that we can keep doing more of it. Also, if you want to see this in video, we post that on our YouTube channel at Fearless Health Podcast. And I think that you'll get a lot out of that if you don't want to just listen to it on audio. So today I'm very, very excited. I have Dr. Brandon Crater with us, and he has been a specialist in diabetes. And so we are going to talk all about diabetic medicine, and it might not be what you expect. We're also going to go over the USDA food guidelines and diets for a diabetic and how how health has turned a little bit political and what you should watch out for. Also, Dr. Crater has built and run one of the largest functional medicine practices, cared for over a thousand patients in practice, trained hundreds of docs and had an indirect hand in reversing chronic disease. And he is the co-host of the Functional Medicine Shift podcast. Welcome to the Fearless Health Podcast with host Dr. Anne-Marie Barter. Dr. Barter is on a mission to help people achieve their health and wellness goals and help men and women live their best lives fearlessly. Dr. Barter is the founder of Alternative Family Medicine and Chiropractic in Denver and Longmont, Colorado. Thank you, Dr. Brandon Crater, so much for being here. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. I think you're going to bring a lot of insight on not only the topic of diabetes, but also maybe some of the political things going on that are causing, you know, the epidemic of diabetes in our country. I mean, is that a fair statement? Do we, is this an epidemic in our country? Oh, I think it's clear that it is. I mean, it's, it's rampant. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. It's increasing. So I think it's definitely safe to say. Yeah. So what were you seeing? So you guys really started focusing in your clinic um, on diabetic patients. And, you know, this wasn't a small clinic. This was a, a very, very large functional medicine clinic. You'd probably say one of the, the largest functional medicine clinics maybe ever. Um, and so you saw a huge number of patients that were struggling with diabetes because that was your main focus. So what did you see as the overwhelming problem with these patients? Was it lack of education? Was it lack of understanding? What's kind of the baseline here? Well, at, at the height of our practice, just to talk about the size of it, which I think gives your, your listeners and viewers some insight into the level of experience, we had over 5,000 active patients. So it was a pretty large clinic. Going back um, and, and sort of understanding how we got started in, in the niche or the, the condition of diabetes and specializing, if you will, or focusing on diabetes, um, I was, we were trying to find our place almost 20 years ago in our practice and understanding, you know, we have all of this knowledge, we have all of this uh, ability as functional medicine practitioners to help people with chronic disease, to be able to show them how to reverse those disease processes, but what do we really want to focus on? And it was it, it was a long journey of month after month, really figuring out what we wanted to do. And um, I literally woke up one morning. I'm sure you've had similar experiences in your life, and maybe your viewers and listeners as well, where you feel like God or some type of force downloaded an idea into your body, into your brain, and it's. It was all there, all of the details. And that idea was to use the research, uh, our education and training and our passion uh, in functional medicine and help and show diabetics how to reverse the disease process. We had obviously had experience treating uh, various diabetics in our clinic, uh, but not really focusing on it as a central message. Um, so we knew we could do it. We knew we could move the needle from a clinical perspective. That wasn't the issue. Um, so it was kind of a shot in the dark of putting out messaging into the community, advertising, if you will. I remember we ran, when we first started this, we ran a little four by four ad in the mm -hmm. newspaper and we got over 450 requests 
for our information. So we had an idea at that point that it was something that we should really be working in. Uh, but more specific to your question, what we began to see, which was shocking to us because we all as practitioners sort of live in our own bubble and we live in it so long that we begin to think that everybody sees the world the way that we do. And they must have at least some small piece of the information that we have. And I think what we were shocked at was to learn um, the lack of information that type two diabetics had, even type one diabetics, just, just diabetes across the board. Uh, anything from sitting in front of a patient who had no idea what the risks and complications were. They had no idea that they could die on average seven years uh, uh, earlier than they would otherwise have been expected to leave this earth. It was just, uh, and even more than that, I think it was not just lack of information. It was that they were indoctrinated with false information about what the disease was, about what their options were for treatment. You alluded to it uh, just a while ago where a lot of people have been trained to think that there's nothing more than you can do than use pharmaceuticals and try to, try to follow the general advice of change your diet, lose weight and exercise. And we're gonna try to manage the inevitable, which is the deterioration of your health and your life with this disease, that there's no possible way to reverse it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So with a type two diabetic, I think most people are on metformin. Oh, great. It's managed. Check. My disease process is managed. So what would you say to somebody that is a diabetic or knows a diabetic, they're on metformin, it's been managed by their primary care MD, and they haven't changed their diet they haven't changed their lifestyle. They're not doing anything else, but it's managed on metformin. Well, that that managed idea is one of the things that was shocking when we really started to pull back the layers in working with this patient population. There were a lot of people. In fact, I think most people would come in thinking that they were in a good space mm -hmm. because if you're in that system, that's what you're told. We're doing the best we can. Oh, your A1C is okay, and it's eight and a half, right? Or <laughs> so even crazy. Yeah, 7.3. Or they think, they're, they think their situation's managed, and their fasting blood glucose on average is 220. Um, so that speaks, again, to the lack of information and clarity about the disease process. Um, so so that, that was shocking. So what I would say to the person who thinks they have it managed it isn't until you go to, in my opinion, a really good, true, pure functional medicine practitioner that has a system set up and has the wherewithal and the structure to be able to run comprehensive labs on you to be able to actually determine if your situation is managed. Now, that's a whole nother thing. If I have a disease process, I have no interest in, interest in managing it. If at, if at the end of the day, that's all I can do fantastic. We'll do our best to manage it. I'm interested in reversing it. So a lot of people didn't know that they could, it could be reversed, but when you begin to get the lab results back and you show these folks what's really going on beyond the label of the disease of diabetes, and they begin to understand that it's much deeper. I mean, you probably know this doc. I mean, all of the labs that we run to, to achieve a comprehensive diagnosis and determine what's causing what, how often are we diagnosing other disease processes? All the time. The person doesn't even know that they have, right? Mm -hmm. That Yeah, your A1C and your glucose is managed per whomever, but your CRP is 15, creating an immense risk factor for having a heart attack or stroke. Not developing cardiovascular disease, but dying today from that type of an event. And, and the fact of the matter is that most healthcare providers working in this mainstream, broken, I, I deem it a corrupt system, um, they're not checking those things for their patient population. Mm -hmm. And and so the idea of it being managed is often false. Mm -hmm. I think and you it's made sad. It's such a great point. I mean, I think looking at it, you know, someone will come in for one thing. They have this disease process. And really what I hear you saying is, it's, there's multiple other things that we're finding on labs. And I found that to be true 
in my own practice for sure. And it's interesting is people get so focused on the one thing that they came in for, but really they are going to drop dead of a cardiovascular disease now. And I mean, the first sign and symptom of a cardiovascular disease is a heart attack, a stroke, whatever, you know, fill in X, Y, and Z. It's not like you get this warning sign, like, Hey, it's coming in six months, or you might want to change things. It's like, bam, you're gone. You know? And I think it always surprises me that people say they were perfectly healthy and they dropped out of a stroke. Like that's fascinating to me that yeah. that what that's the correlation or the conclusion. So I think we, that, that was a really good point. We've been conditioned to think that way, to mm-hmm. think about our body, which is magnificent. The way our body functions as it relates to physiology, biochemistry, our hormones, immune system, et cetera, how our brain works. But we've been conditioned to think about our body as a system of parts you know, you go to your neurologist to handle your neurological problems, your endocrinologist to handle things like diabetes, your heart doctor, and so on and so forth. But that's not how the body works, no matter how bad we want it to work that way. It's a fully integrated system that that where one imbalance creates another, then creates another, then creates another. And I think our population doesn't understand that. We've lost sight of what I think is innately true, mm-hmm. and, it, and it creates a huge problem. So you said something that I think is really interesting. You called the system corrupt. So tell me what you mean. Why don't we break this down into smaller pieces? Why don't we talk about the food system um, there and what you've seen maybe with the concerns, especially around diabetic patients um, in the corruption that you've seen and how that affects their condition? Well, what we become um, conditioned and indoctrinated to think about food in a very specific way. I mean, we have been advertised to, uh, as well as educated about what food is and what we should eat and what we shouldn't eat and what's good to eat and that's not good to eat. Um, and most of it is completely wrong. It has been pushed by lobbyists, by um, uh, business interests, uh, uh, food, uh, multinational food conglomerates that lobby governments to push out through their health departments and the education of what's good to eat. For example, we were talking about this before we went live on the podcast, the concept that a diabetic would be told one of the things they should do with their diet is to eat a lot of whole grains (laughs) is ridiculous. It is completely and utterly ridiculous. Um, So what is up is down, what is down is up, and what is in and out, you know, it's it's everything is, a diabetic would be better served to take the standard of care dietary advice and do the exact opposite. That's how bad it is. And um, it's all, in my opinion, and I think there's evidence to support this, and I think um, the understanding of this is growing, it's all designed to support business. Um, huge multinational food companies that are trying to push their products to the consumer base uh, that is not healthy for them. That's what they're doing. And it feeds into this corrupt and broken system because obviously if you eat a bunch of foods that aren't healthy for you, you're going to become sicker. So you're going to be a slave to the medical system, the mainstream medical system. Now, I'm not speaking particularly or per se about specific medical practitioners Although I think to a certain degree at a, at a, some point in time, they, they have a level of responsibility. And when they don't take that responsibility, they become complicit in the scheme to push what we're talking about here. But I'm talking about largely the medical industrial complex that wants more and more consumers, people, human beings in their system. Why? To make money. And, and, uh, The foods that diabetics are told to eat are almost the exact opposite of what they should be eating. It keeps them sicker. They go into the system. They take more drugs. They don't fix the problem. That actually cause more problems and perpetuate the actual cause of the disease in the first place, which goes back to something we were just talking about. When we talk about managing your disease process, you have no idea the mechanisms or the causes underneath the label of diabetes that are at play. It's actually quite shocking. And what are those? I'd be super curious what you feel like those are. 
Well, um, I'll, I'll try to give you a bullet pointed list of the things that we see when we begin to, when we begin to peel the layers away of a diabetic. And, and, and I think it's worth stating in our practice, we don't look at someone as a diabetic. It doesn't matter to us. I mean, my 13 year, year old could diagnose diabetes. That's not very difficult. The more difficult question to answer is what is actually causing it for each individual. And that's another important point that what's causing it for each individual is often very different. The narrative of it's your weight, you're lazy, it's your diet, or it runs in your genes, it runs in your family is nonsense. The genes but, drive me nuts. <laughs> drive me nuts. Oh. <laughs> in my genes, yeah, we haven't found one gene that they have said is responsible for uh, type 2 diabetes. And the research says that even if they were to find a gene that would be responsible for the development of type 2 diabetes, it would be in such a negligible percentage of the population as a causative factor. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question, I think one of the top things that we're seeing in our practice now, just because we're now looking for it, um, just as we go through our continuing education process and continue to try to become better and sharper and brighter clinicians, uh, the first thing I would, that comes to mind is biotoxin illness, in particular mold. Um, yes. We screen every new patient that is being treated in this practice for biotoxin illness and in particular mold. And I cannot express to you how high the percentage is of people who have this problem. And what's interesting is we have practiced for years, never directly treating mold as an example. And we have phenomenal results at reversing diabetes, doing the things that I'll talk to you about here in a second. But now that we started understanding the, the mold-diabetes connection and applying therapeutics there, not only in clinic, but in a person's home or business or where they spend a lot of time in moldy structure, structures or water-damaged buildings, it is amazing to me how we can do basically nothing that would be classically thought of as diabetic care. Totally. Uh, <laughs> meaning changing the way a person eats, exercises, sleeps, stress reduction, and in particular, nutritional supplementation that we know targets diabetes at a very direct in a, in a very direct way. Do none of those things, just handle the biotoxin issue and watch a person's blood sugar begin to come down. Totally. Isn't it amazing? I 100% agree. Yep. Totally. Yep. Yeah. So we, we see people's uh, A1C normalizing, blood sugar coming down, lipid panels normalizing, joint pain going away, getting off of meds, losing weight, increasing energy just from doing that. The average person looking at this clinician like, well, you're not even treating the diabetes. Well, we are because we're treating an underlying causative factor that's contributing to the person's inability to regulate their blood sugar or promoting insulin resistance. Um, I think another thing that we see a lot that is often missed and it's tragic, it's autoimmunity. And the average adult diabetic when they're diagnosed with, with diabetes in a very lazy way are just labeled with type two diabetes. But if you dig deeper and you run the right labs, what you will find, it's really a paradox in, in, in so many ways, is that yes, they may have the typical mechanism of insulin resistance involved in their type two diabetes, but they also have a type one mechanism, which is autoimmunity. Their immune system has lost its way and is attacking the hormone insulin itself, insulin receptor sites or the pancreas or all of the above. And you would imagine that if a person has an autoimmune mechanism to their disease process and you never know about it, therefore you never treat it, how is that person expected to get well? And that's what's going on in our public. Not to mention when a person has, for example, an autoantibody response to the hormone insulin, and here we are at least at some point on the, on the timeline, we're injecting more insulin into the body. What are we doing? We're, we're fueling the fire. We're, we're putting more antigen, so to speak, into the system. Um, certainly a cause of another um, major cause of diabetes is uh, hormonal. Um, a lot of hormonal imbalances can be the precursor, if you will. For example, um, women who develop uh, high, high levels of testosterone known as 
polycystic ovarian syndrome. That is a pre-diabetic marker. And for a lot of women that have that process, that never gets diagnosed, never gets diagnosed at all. Another thing that comes to mind is underlying thyroid disease that has never been found, checked. You have a woman, it can happen in men as well, as well but they have every thyroid symptom in the book, never can be diagnosed. And next thing you know, they're diagnosed with diabetes because there's a very strong correlation between um, thyroid issues and uh, yeah, inadequate blood sugar control developing into diabetes. Um, something super simple when you look at the literature as it relates to an underlying mechanism is vitamin D deficiency, which is that, excuse the expression, pandemic rates in our country. Um, I don't know the last time I checked vitamin D levels on a patient and found them to be adequate. That's right. Almost never. And if they are, if they are normal, it's because they're taking it. Um and, and, and the literature is clear that low levels of vitamin D can be certainly a risk factor for the development of type 2 diabetes, but also a specific causative factor. Um, adrenal gland dysfunction, that's another important piece, which I think ultimately is kind of down on the level because the, when the adrenal glands dysfunction, it's usually as a, re a result of something else bigger uh, in the body. So. What, what is interesting, and, and I don't want to go too far down this because your, your viewers and listeners will get super bored, but <laughs> it, it literally Good. is a it's a laundry list of potential mechanisms that need to be uncovered. For example, food sensitivities and food allergies that stoke an inflammatory response in the body and an immune response in the body that can contribute to physiology breaking down over time leading up to diabetes. You're never going to fix diabetes if that's the case, if you never go back and understand what foods a person is sensitive to and how that's affecting their immune system. Mm -hmm. There's a gut, there's a gut uh, glycemia connection that, that I'm sure you're aware of. Um, so the gut can begin to unravel a person's ability to control their blood sugar as well. So, I mean, I completely agree with all of these pieces and my focus is not diabetes. I type two is super easy. I think to treat, um, I've, I've just had roundabout luck with it. Um, just because I treat all those other things and it's just like, Oh wow, that's totally stabilized. Oh wow. That has dropped. And I think my first experience with this was treating mold on a type one and type two diabetic patient and just watching the, um, insulin pump, the usage of that come down, you know, and never touching it, just completely treating the biotoxin that was in, in their house and addressing that and just watching the numbers continue to come down without addressing anything else, which I thought was amazing, but nobody is talking about it. I mean, you're the first person I've actually heard talk about it, that that is actually linked and the rest of it is all very a little bit more, I think, understood, but environmental chemicals don't seem to be as well understood with diabetes. Even though it says this will cause, you know, this is an endocrine disruptor. This will cause problems, which that endocrine disruptor could be on your estrogen, you know, or it could be on cortisol or it could be on insulin, whatever it is. So to me, it's just so confusing. So I think the next part that I see in practice is, you know, a patient will say, well, I went to my MD and well, I have high blood sugar levels and I have, I, my thyroid's fine, but they have all these symptoms and they're like, well, you know, I don't have any of these issues or these problems that you're talking about. And I got a stool test and that was fine. So what's your comment about the difference on the testing that you're running versus, you know, somebody else is running in just a traditional medical uh, environment? Well, I think the difference is, hmm, I think it comes back to a philosophy. Mm -hmm. You know, the way that you and I are trained and others like us are trained, there's a core philosophy that animates everything we do in practice. And, and the way that I verbalize this to my patient population and to the marketplace is, sounds like this, you were born to heal. Your body knows how to self-regulate, return to balance, for example, 
regulate its own blood sugar, which is one of the most important things that the body has to do to keep you functioning optimally and to keep you alive. When you can no longer do that, it's for a reason. You know, the world still lives, uh, it still functions, as far as I know, on cause and effect. It didn't just happen. This is why the narrative of, um, the simplistic narrative of it runs in your family, it's in your genes, it's the way you eat, you're lazy, blah, 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 is so damaging because it robs the person of what I think you're promoting, which is like this, this approach to health that is fearless, where the person doesn't take these superficial gobbledygook explanations as gospel. And they understand that, well, I have this problem. Something broke. Something is causing that. Let's go about the business of figuring out what that is beyond the narrative, right? Let's, let's look at what's really real. Let's, let's really look at what's really in the research um, and what's really um, what our education teaches us, right? And the only way to do that is through testing. Certainly a good health history can tell a clinician a lot about what be, could be causing the problem. But deeper than that, it's you have to do thorough testing. And that comes from, again, this foundational philosophy as uh, we know the person was born to heal. They're born to self-regulate. They're not doing it. Let's go figure out with our thinking brain what's causing this. On the medical side, it's all designed to test within the standard of care, which means that the doctor, largely speaking, is going to test things at a level that keeps them safe from lawsuit and regulatory action. Uh, They're also going to be responding to the insurance company that pays their bills and puts money in their bank account and allows them to have a life. If the insurance company doesn't want you to do exhaustive testing, over time, the doctor's not going to do it, and it's not supported by the standard of care. I've actually seen, I myself have been attacked um, and ridiculed, and I've seen other medical doctors um, ridiculed because they test too much. That's not necessary. That's not medically indicated. Well, unless and until I find out all of the possible causes for my patient's problems, how is it not medically necessary? Makes no sense to me. Um, I think also, to be frank, and, and, I, and I've seen this in practice, and I don't mean to be disparaging towards any particular profession and certainly not an individual, but I have to call a spade a spade. There's no doubt that medical doctors, as an example, because we're comparing and contrasting our functional medicine model, more natural approach to healing, and a pharmaceutically driven model, which is dominated by the medical profession. There's no doubt that a medical doctor who comes out of school is a very bright person. They're not stupid. But what happens when, they, when they're in school and when they get out of school into practice, they become sort of stupid, <laughs> meaning that I have had conversations with medical doctors and had tried to have conversations about biochemistry and physiology and all of these things that we're supposed to know and learn in school and use to treat patients to actually think things through. Doc, they have no clue. Mm. They have no understanding. They're not in touch with the most current research at all. And I get it. They're busy. They become more of a technician where this is how I do my job. Diabetic comes in, they're diagnosed. This is the recipe of how to fix them. And as long as I do that, they, they begin to convince themselves that they're doing the standard of care and they're doing a service to their patient. And the way that they sort of explain away the really, really poor results is that's just the way it is. They got sick and we're providing the best and the, the, everything that we know to help this person. And we're, we're doing the best we can. So they, that's how they explain away the poor results. I couldn't think of anything I would want to do less than be an endocrinologist treating diabetics in a medical practice and a pharmaceutical model, watching these people die right in front of you. And I've talked to doctors who practice in this fashion, who are sick of it, who who can't go to sleep at night as they begin to educate themselves and, and actually have the courage to look at the results. 
and to be able to admit that this is not working. This is a flawed system. This is not helping the patient population. And then they begin to understand that what they're giving their patients actually perpetuates the very mechanisms that are causing their problem in the first place. So back to your question, um, you, you have to test. You have to understand with your thinking brain with through, through a keen understanding of biochemistry and physiology and all of the different systems in the body, how everything interrelates and can begin to create um, a dysregulation of blood sugar. And then you set up your diagnostic test to go check those very systems to answer the question, what's causing it? And then what's causing that? And what's causing that? And so, so on and so forth. And that's the difference between a diabetic that's being treated solely in a medical practice, and, and, I, and I should make a distinction here, it's not just medical providers. There are a lot of natural healthcare practitioners, whether it be chiropractors, nutritionists, naturopathic doctors that miss the mark, that treat largely on symptoms, or that they don't have a structure to get all of the labs that they, would, that they know they need to get to help their patient. So it's important for each practitioner to have that structure so they can you know, put your dream list together of what you really need to help this patient and get it so you can achieve what I call a comprehensive diagnosis. When you actually sit down, I think, and educate patients about the labs and they understand why these labs are being run, generally it's not a problem. They're like, it's it's a breath of fresh air to actually get these labs run for the first time. And, and I'll have a really frank conversation with somebody and say, you know, I'm, I'm happy to treat you, but I'm just going to be able to treat symptoms if you're not really willing to run the labs and I can use my best guess. And I'm right about, mm, I don't know, 60 to 80% of the time, you know, uh, but I'm going to miss something. I am going to miss things. And that may be the, a huge difference in your case to, to miss something. And so I would highly recommend running the labs because I think in the long run, it's going to save you a lot of money, a lot of headache, a lot of time. And you're going to know that you're taking and doing things that are directly correlated with the, with what we found on the labs versus, well, this nebulous idea, I could have been exposed to mold. Maybe there was this one time that I remember going to this friend's house repeatedly and it could have been there. You know, I think it it just answers a lot of questions and it makes everything so much cleaner and so much more straightforward. But I agree with you. I think most people choose to manage symptoms or just say, oh, your hair is falling out because you should go get this special shampoo. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to be bald. I just don't. (laughs) So I, you know, I, it's, it's really interesting watching people just treat the symptoms or, you know, or just focus on what they think, diabetes, period. There can be nothing else going on. And I, I think it's almost always a snowball of 10 different things that you have to treat in people coming in. I saw some like terrible statistic that 10% of Americans are actually disease-free. I think it, I think it was I think it was that terrifying. I don't doubt it and and I'll comment on that and dovetail on that. When I hear reports and who knows what's true, but just as an example in dealing with COVID-19. Yeah. You see people pushing out these ideas that well this person was 35 or 42 and perfectly healthy and he died of COVID. BS. It it, it doesn't maybe there's a possibility, but it's an outside possibility. I can almost guarantee you that that person had some underlying condition and problem that they just didn't know about because it hasn't expressed itself in outward symptoms. I mean, monitoring your health based on symptoms is one of the worst things that you could possibly do. We have access to really uh, inexpensive nowadays, uh, thorough testing that tells clinicians what's going on with your system. Take advantage of it. Look at objective data to see if you actually are healthy. And, that, and I think that that goes into the, the whole uh, different spectrum of what is the definition of health. For most people, people think that the definition of health is the absence of disease 
or they don't have symptoms and they can kind of go through their day with, without a whole lot of, you know, effort. That's not my definition of health. Um, and I think it, that that feeds into the the term functional medicine. What exactly are we doing? We're striving for optimal function so that we don't get sick. And then when we do get sick, uncovering the underlying mechanism so we could restore that normal function. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to uh, read on the USDA's website because I think that this is super exciting. And they I'm still like, allow them to have a website? Yeah, I know. I know. This is, this is good. I almost fell out of my chair when I read this this morning. Do I need to still watch my cholesterol intake? I get this question occasionally still to today. Um, and they say, in fact, the dietary guidelines states that people should eat as little dietary cholesterol as possible, end quote. Do you think that cholesterol causes things like cardiovascular disease or creating these underlying causes? And do you think that this is good advice? Well, I think, let me answer the last question first. I think it's terrible advice Um, (laughs) to your other question. I think it's a player on the team, for example, of what contributes to what we know as cardiovascular disease. But oddly enough, I think when you, when you dig in, into it and you understand what's really going on, the cholesterol that begins to contribute to the formation of plaques in the artery, it's there because it's trying to heal a damaged blood vessel. It's trying to heal damage to the endothelium. And uh, think of it, you know, you're, if you're a lay person, you might think of it like a blister that is happening on the inside of your, your, your blood vessel, which you can envision as a little small tube. And um, you get a lot of inflammation there. It begins to blister. And the body says, oh, crap, we have injury. We need to put out a fire. So cholesterol is produced and and cholesterol goes there. And it just sits right on there like almost a salve to soothe the area and promote healing. But if you don't go back and figure out why that irritation to your blood vessel is occurring in the first place, what happens? It keeps going and it keeps going and keeps going and the cholesterol just comes and it comes and then the platelets come and everything sticks together and you get lack of blood flow or you get a breakage and you're done. Um, So I think the idea of limiting, reducing, or even trying to pay attention to your dietary cholesterol as a means to lower your cholesterol and prevent heart attack and stroke is kind of silly. It's lazy medicine. It's not supported by the research at all. It's not supported by just textbook learning of how these things occur in the first place, but there's a lot of money in fat-free foods. There's a lot of money in pushing statin cholesterol-lowering medications to the general public, and that's why this, this stuff happens. Now, certainly we should have a discussion about, well, I don't know if I just said this, but... <laughs> When you run your labs, when your doctor clinician runs your labs and they get your cholesterol, the amount of cholesterol in your blood has virtually nothing to do with the amount of dietary cholesterol you consume. It is almost all produced by your body, i.e. your your liver. So reducing your cholesterol uh, intake to lower your cholesterol number is almost impossible. Um, it's, it's, it's what we were talking about earlier up is down and down is up. It's the exact opposite, but we should certainly have a discussion with our patients as it relates to consuming healthy fats and staying away from bad damaged fats. That that's a whole nother discussion that I think the general public has no idea about uh, still. And, and, and even for me as a clinician, it's hard to navigate when you go out into the world and eat at restaurants and pick up what you think is clean food, it's often laced and cooked with very damaged oils, which are very damaging to the body. And let me add to that, if you don't mind. What we're seeing now, and you're probably seeing the same thing, is a an epidemic of low cholesterol. You know, you see these people who are, one, trying to restrict their fat, so they have a little blip, little percentage of their dietary cholesterol being affected by that, almost negligible. But they are loaded up on all these cholesterol-lowering medications. They're eating bad fats, for example, and they come in and their total cholesterol is 115. Terrifying. 
and they wonder why they're they're sick and unhealthy and they can't think and they have no energy what i would say to your listeners and your viewers is fat good healthy fat and cholesterol it's one of the most vital nutrients that the body has in its system if it weren't why do we produce it the body's not stupid it's not producing something for no reason unless it's in a sick state um but cholesterol is a very vital nutrient, protects our cells. It's necessary for hormone production and brain health and all of these different things. So it's very important to not take it too far. And, and unfortunately, when we see this in our clinic and we refer them back to their prescribing physicians to talk about low cholesterol, they, they will hear nothing of it. Again, because they're practicing the standard of care. Let's push the cholesterol as low as it humanly as low as it's humanly possible and we don't really care about the effects i've seen i've seen articles where they're trying to push total cholesterol to lower than 100 i mean that that's asinine it's, it's crazy i did not know that yeah they're trying so, to create a new standard oh. which often happens they keep moving the goalposts because if you move the goalposts the more people that will be uh, qualified, if you will, for the medication. Right. And I think they're trying to get people younger and younger. I've heard the new target audience for statins is actually children that they yeah. have really focused their attention there because if you start a kid early, then they're on those meds for life. I mean, that's a, it's a long time customer. And the average patient, let alone the, the average doctor is not even reading the science. When you go and read the research and you find out what they're deeming effective, by the drug, you, you, my mouth is open like, oh, it's 15% effective. Really? So we're going to use this drug, which has a lot of harmful side effects, side effects and risk for a 15% effectiveness, right? It, it makes no sense. But the patient population is designed, is, is trained to think, oh, it's FDA approved. There's studies that says this helps, but they never ask the question, well, how effective is it really? Right. So with these patients that you're seeing in your practice, like how are you going about moving forward and discussing diet? Like what are some like loose recommendations that you're doing for diet? Because, you know, th this is going to be even more, they say the caffeine dietary guideline, it can be up to five cups of coffee per day. You can have some some whole milk, some added, oh, just, I can't even, I can't, I got to put it down. <laughs> so, I just can't. It's just so, so upsetting. It's everything I don't say. So, um, so what are some guidelines that are going to kind of get people at least started on a good path? Yeah, I have, I have a, you know, after years of doing this, we've developed a core set of recommendations that almost all of our diabetics follow. Um, having said that, there is no one diabetic diet. You really should be working with a functional medicine provider to, to customize that and fine tune it so that you maximize your results. You know, it's the difference bet between continuing to be diabetic at a low level and maybe requiring a little bit of medication or becoming non-diabetic. That's, that's the polishing of the dietary recommendations. But I would say I would say this. Let's let's first talk about things that that a person should stay away from. I learned a long time ago when I was studying to be a functional medicine doctor before functional medicine was even a term. One of my early mentors said something, and it stuck with me because it's so basic. You can't fix a blood sugar problem by continuing to put sugar into the system. You're only straining the very systems that are not working in the first place. Now, does that mean you need to do that for the rest of your life? Maybe not. But when we're trying to recover, it's important to cut out the sugar. So let's have a discussion about that. Of course, soda pops, cookies, cake, candy, ice cream, ho-hos, all of that stuff, gone. You are never going to recover putting those things into your body. So we're talking about junk food, potato chips, and you know, those types of things that hopefully is obvious to the average person today. Um, alcohol has to be out. Alcohol is a sugar. Okay. And there's, there's evidence and there is well thought out rationale 
And I know that there are multiple reasons why become people become alcoholics, but one of them is because the person has a blood sugar problem that has not yet spiraled into some disease. So they're using the sugar from the alcohol to sort of medicate this underlying dysglycemia or blood sugar handling problem. So I would say definitely no alcohol for the rest of your life. No, not necessarily, uh, but certainly while you're recovering. Caffeine is oftentimes a problem uh, for many reasons. So we, we, tr we have our patients get off of caffeine while they're recovering and rebuilding their system, they're rebooting their system. Um, the other thing to really pay attention to is starchy foods, breads, pastas, rice, and potatoes. Even if you're this advanced at this stage that you're eating gluten-free bread, it's still a starch and it's still going to turn to sugar into your body very quickly, cause a rapid spike in your glucose, huge insulin surge, and perpetuate the problem. Um, the other things I would say to stay away from is gluten, dairy, soy, and corn. Corn is not a vegetable, it's a grain, and it's used <laughs> to fatten up cattle and pigs. So it's, 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 it's basically straight sugar. So those are the things that we should stay away from, not to mention the last four things that I mentioned are very common food sensitivities, very inflammatory foods. Um, what you should focus on, and, and, and here's the issue with patients, they oftentimes focus on what you can't eat, and they get discouraged because you're taking away the things that they eat. They're like, I don't know what the hell I'm going to eat. This, it's all I eat. I'm like, well, that's part of the reason that you're sick. Not the only reason, but it's certainly a, con a huge contributing factor. We, we ask our patients to focus on the things that you get to eat. So our mantra is this, protein and vegetables at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So protein, ideally animal protein. In our practice, some of your viewers and listeners might be surprised to know that we do not even admit vegetarians. If you don't eat meat, and that might be somewhat controversial, and it's not the same for every practitioner, but... For us, if you don't eat animal protein, you can't be a, a, a member in the practice. We, we won't treat you. And it's just because our experience is that people who don't eat animal protein generally don't heal well. So I'm talking about things like beef, yes, but clean beef, right? To the, to the extent that you can with your budget, organic, grass-fed, no hormones, no antibiotics, animals that were raised humanely, etc., you want to source out those types of animal proteins. So beef, chicken, pork, even fish, um, turkey, wild game, things of that nature. That's what I'm talking about when I say protein. And then vegetables, as many vegetables as you can, green leafy vegetables, um, all sorts of different colors. And let me tell you how we, we, we ask our patients to construct their plate. Remember when we used to go to school in elementary school and our plates were constructed and they had these little pods I don't know. I went to public school. So, you know, the, the cafeteria ladies would, would it's put a the tray. Food, like a it's tray, so right? Good. So think about your, 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 your plate. Like it has four pods in it and um, you want three of those four pods to be your veggies and one to be uh, a piece of protein that is generally the size of your fist, just to, to give you a good um, recommendation. And then some fruit, minimal amount of fruit, uh, in between the meals as snacks. Some diabetics can't handle fruit at all. They have a fruit fructose toxicity issue, um, which contributes to their blood sugar problem, but also causes gout and high levels of uric acid and inflammation and risk of heart disease, um, and certainly no fruit juice. So those are the general dietary recommendations. Um, try to eat things that you can gather and hunt. Try to get it as clean as possible based on your budget. Um, and if you for me, maybe you, maybe you disagree, and I'd, I'd love to hear your take on this. What I would do if I was trying to manage my budget as I was trying to clean up my diet, I would opt for cleaner, organic, pasture-raised or grain-fed, not grain-fed, grass-fed um, meats uh, over eating organic vegetables. I'd almost, it's a tough call, but I'd almost rather eat conventionally grown vegetables if I had had to choose compared to conventionally grown protein. What are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I'm super weird about protein that just comes from anywhere. I get really uncomfortable with it and I won't eat it because I can taste the difference. So yeah, that stresses me out. I actually, when I didn't have enough money to really afford organic food, um, I quit eating out. I quit driving. I rode a bike everywhere. And the money that I would have spent on gas, I actually spent at the grocery store. And, you know, that's personally what I did. I mean, I think that that's super extreme. I also didn't have um, TV at all. I didn't have internet at my house. Like I was like bare minimum. I didn't have any extra expenses, but I spent my money on organic uh, vegetables primarily and organic protein. So that's, I mean, I'm a little bit more (laughs) extreme that way, but for me, that was, um, that was the choice that I made. So it's confusing to me when, when it's even handed to you, the people that won't take control of their health, you know, because for it, it was such a core principle for me to see where I had come from and see what I needed to continue to do to keep it up. It was so important. So, you know, that's my take. It's interesting you bring that up. It's a good conversation to have because in our practice, we have values and standards and we look for patients who match our values and standards. And that core value and standard that we look for is, can you demonstrate to us that your health is your number one priority above everything else in your life with no exceptions? And that's what you were you know, uh, demonstrating in how you managed your life at that time. We had a very similar experience when we were starting out, getting out of school, mm-hmm. starting a practice. We had no money. I don't know how we made it. Um, and I remember my wife uh, at the time, at the time she was my girlfriend, she would go to one grocery store to buy the conventional vegetables and then go to Whole Foods to buy just the meat, you know, because that's all our budget would allow. And I think what's interesting, you have to start somewhere. It's really a mindset. I think all of us should really think about what our health means to us Um, because you can't do anything well. You can't maximize anything in your life without your health. Those that are losing their health know this, but unfortunately, they reset their norms. and They think this is just the way life is supposed to be. So they forget the importance of their health. I mean, you can't be a good earner. Your income's going to suffer because your job performance is not going to be there. Um, you can't be a good mother or father. You can't be a good sibling, a good best friend, a good business owner, and so on and so forth. You can't be a good grandparent if your health is not there. So the value of putting your health as your number one priority above everything in your life, else in your life, leads to great things. And I would bet you that you wouldn't be where you are today if you hadn't done that, because you wouldn't have the fuel and the resources to continue to grow, right? Um, A lot of people get hung up on the short-term suffering with their money and their budget and things that they can't do that they really want to do, the extracurricular stuff, because they're putting more money into the food that they choose, for example. But over a very short period of time, you will find that your income and earning potential begins to increase because you're just a higher functioning human. Mm-hmm. I you know? agree. Yeah. So that's, I, that's, I think that's fearless health. Like mm-hmm. I think that is being super clear on what our health means to us each as individuals. Mm-hmm. It's funny because people here or patients here would see me riding my bike with my yoga mat hanging out of the back of my everything. And they're like, Oh, were you going to yoga? I'm like, unbelievable. <laughs> it was like everywhere. <laughs> you have your sandals on as well. <laughs> I was just, it was funny. It was really funny. But yeah, I think health should be a top priority because really you don't have anything without it. You know, I, what the quote is, you know, to gain wealth, you can lose health because you just basically are putting everything into that. But I mean, I, you know, I don't think it has to be one way or the other. I think that it's fine to, to make your, but your health needs to be your number one priority across the board. And, you know, yeah. Yeah. So we take a pretty hard stance on that in the beginning, because I think Yes, in in general, in life, like it's difficult to live by that creed. 
Um, and there, there can be balance and moderation within that. But in a clinical environment, when you're dealing with people who are literally going to die because no one is helping them fix their health problems, we look at it, at it, at it as in the beginning urgent care. Like we're almost in an emergency situation. So let's be as 100% on task as possible so that we can heal those mechanisms and heal those systems that are not working properly. And then later we can find that balance where we can find what we can tolerate when we want to stray from things that are healthy. Awesome. Is there anything that I didn't ask that you think is important to cover? Um, I, I think it's just worth restating that if you, anyone listening is diabetic or they, they have a loved one or close friend that's diabetic or they come across a diabetic in the future, most of these folks are being um, lied to would be harsh. They're being misinformed. They're not, they don't have the true story. Um, diabetes happens for a reason um, and it is not what we are told. Uh, the reasons that it happens. And each person has diabetes for particular reasons that need to be uncovered, which then then dictates that a customized program needs to be constructed for each diabetic so that they can heal. And I think the, the other uh, sort of headline out of this is type 2 diabetes is reversible. And we rarely see patients fail. And you sort of alluded to it earlier. It's actually pretty darn easy. I mean, these are, these are not the most difficult cases in the world. And the types of results that we all see in the functional medicine environment are astounding. People reducing and eliminating their medications and need for insulin, um, which just doing that uh, improves someone's health. Losing weight without exercise and radical diets and exercise regimens that people can't do in the first place. And reducing and eliminating um, risk factors for diabetic complications and early death and so on and so forth. And just watching these more, more than those things, the total transformation of a human being that was once in the dark and that now begins to see clearly and to begin to recapture that like power that they were born with that power of knowing that I I'm responsible. I heal from the inside out. Health doesn't come from the outside in. It comes from the inside out. I think recapturing that power is very powerful and it puts, you know, sometimes people think when you say it's your responsibility, they feel that they're being blamed. We're not saying it's your fault. We're saying it's your responsibility, which should be like, yes, I can do something about it. I think what COVID-19 has shown us is that no one's going to come running to rescue you. About all they have for us is wear your mask, wash your hands, social distance, you know, and wait for a vaccine. These are all health from the outside in concepts that are very, um, uh, they, they, they disempower people, if that's a word, right? They, they take power away from you like you are a subject of something else. No, no, we are all autonomous units, if you will. We are the sovereign of our body and our health. And think about if you are a mother, a father, or a grandparent, the level of responsibility that you have to acquire this information and this power and recapture it so that you can look down at your kids and grandkids and, and create a legacy that teaches people about true healthcare. Well said. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you? Well, um, what I'm doing these days is teaching other doctors. I've been doing this for a long time. It's where my focus is. Um, and, and the name of that company is called the FM Shift. So you can connect with us at the FMShift.com. We have a podcast called the FM Shift Podcast. Uh, that is for clinicians, um, information for clinicians, but you might be able to get some tips there. And I'm on the cusp of launching my own personal brand that will be direct to consumer um, that I'm super excited about, but nothing to announce there just yet. Look out yet. I didn't know about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Look out. 
Well, awesome. Well, we'll wait for that and we'll be excited to hear about that when it happens. So thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate having you and you spreading your knowledge and info. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed learning with us today, please give us a five-star review, comment, like, and share our podcast with your friends and family. As always, if you'd like to learn more information about today's guest, please head over to fearlesshealthpodcast.com for links to their site and other educational resources.